Father, we come to you again this morning, knowing that you are the cornerstone, Lord, that you are the king. And we ask, Lord, that we will make you that king of our lives, Father, that we will give you the glory this morning. And Lord, as we go into this time of teaching, and as we look into your word this morning, Father, I ask that you will receive the glory, that you will receive the honor, Father, that these words, this passage that we read won't be about us, but it will be about you, and that you will be exalted in it, Lord. Lord, you are an amazing, amazing God. May we never forget that this morning. Thank you, Lord, for using us. Speak through me this morning, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Kids, you are dismissed. Uh, to head over to Kids Worship next door. I hear it's going to be a great morning, a great time of teaching. And thank you, Solomon and the worship team. Didn't they lead us fantastically this morning? I, uh, this is Solomon's second time with us. Uh, he was here back in December, if you all remember. And we, we love having Solomon here and, and him joining us. And uh, it's, it's so great to have days and, and, and times of worship where I can kind of go down and just be led. It's just, it's an incredible feeling, and uh, thank you, Solomon, for filling in this morning. Uh, today, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through 11. So as you're turning there this morning, also as a side note, the last time I preached on Palm Sunday, it was 2013. And it was after that sermon that I knew that God was calling me into vocational ministry. So I'm really curious to see what's going to happen after this one. <laughs> but today I want to talk about the triumphant arrival of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Now we celebrate this in our Christian faith as Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. Now I overheard Michael Nietzsche kind of teaching on this a little bit this morning. So I thought about ambushing him before service and just asking him to teach y'all. But uh, I figured he wouldn't appreciate that much, so we're going to go with me. But we see this as the start of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, the start of Holy Week, because this day marks the beginning of Jesus' final uh, part of his ministry and the fulfillment of his purpose and mission on this earth. Five days after Jesus comes in the city, he would be crucified, he would be put to death on a cross, and in seven days after entering the city, he would be raised from the dead, resurrected. But today is Palm Sunday, and that time has not come yet. And we'll be celebrating his death and resurrection later this week, and Good Friday on Friday night, and Easter Sunday morning, his resurrection. But today is the beginning of Passover week. And my goal this morning is to walk us through this passage while providing basically four application points uh, for what is required from us as believers to receive our King, our Savior, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So what we find here in Matthew 21, it's, it's, it's sort of a transition point in the ministry of Jesus. Now, depending on how you interpret Scripture and how you interpret the Bible and timelines and everything, Jesus has been engaging in his earthly ministry either one or three years at this point. He's been teaching people about the kingdom of God, interpreting scriptures for them. He's performed amazing miracle that includes, but is not limited to, healing the lame, making the blind to see, raising uh, the dead to life, 
even casting out demons out of individuals. He's amassed followers, and then he subsequently lost followers after saying things like, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, or let the, bed, let the dead bury their dead. The people will either love him or they don't. It's, it's really simple. Um, so, but at this point, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem five days before Passover, all is that is behind him. He's going to remain in this royal city or right outside of it until his death and resurrection. He would turn over tables in the temples. He would challenge the faith of the Pharisees and the logic of the religious teachers. He would teach the crowds listening to him. He would have a Passover meal with his disciples. He would go to the Garden of Gethsemane all in the five days before being arrested and turned over to the Romans to be put to death. And Jesus when he enters this city, knows what is coming. He knows what he must do, and he is prepared to do the will of his Father. And that's where Jesus is at this point. Now, this passage that we're going to be reading this morning is found in all four Gospels. It's one of the, it, one of the alone ones that are found in all of the Gospels. And, but I want to use Matthew's account of it. So we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of Matthew 21. And we're going to kind of, we're not going to read the entire thing right now, but we're just going to start at the beginning. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So what we were going to see first this morning is that in this time and in this account and in our own lives, receiving the king requires preparation. Receiving the king requires preparation. Now, the Gospels differ at this point of who was with Jesus. We know definitely his disciples were with him, but some of the other Gospel accounts lead us to believe that he also had a large crowd traveling with him at this point. And we see here that Jesus is going to stop at Bethphage, which is on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to send two disciples ahead into the village, which most scholars believe is Bethany. And we see up here, this is just a little map. Um, I didn't draw this. This is beautiful. But uh, you see, there's Bethany, there's Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, and uh, uh, Jerusalem over there to the left. And what you see is that uh, Bethphage would have been about a mile east of Jerusalem. It's about a mile east of Jerusalem. Um, So it's kind of the same distance as if we were going to Sundance Square in downtown Fort Worth. But we stopped just south of the Water Gardens and the Convention Center. So if you're familiar with Fort Worth, it's about a mile, a little less, about, the, about a mile there. So it, it's not that far from the city, but you have to remember, when Jesus is about to enter the city, he's surrounded by a lot of people. He's riding on the colt of a donkey. And so it's about a mile there to the east. And we see that Jesus sends two unnamed disciples ahead with a very specific mission. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. Very specific, right? Not vague at all. Go into the village ahead. You'll arrive, you'll see a donkey and a colt tied with her. Untie them and bring them back to me. 
And Jesus follows this with this extra information. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, how do I know that Jesus is truly God? Here's how. Because he told two disciples to go grab a donkey and a colt who had no idea who they were. And he said to go untie them, random donkeys, and bring them back to him. I've dealt with donkeys before. They are stubborn. Has anybody ever dealt with a donkey? Few. They're stubborn, right? They're stubborn animals. They're, and this one, it was a donkey, and it had his, her colt with her. And trying to bring them back, I can imagine, would not have been an easy task. Uh, it may have been. But to me, it definitely wouldn't have been an easy task, especially if the donkey and the colt didn't know who I was. But they managed to do it. So like I said, I know Jesus is God. Let me just say. Now, notice what Jesus tells them their response should be to anyone who asks them. The Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. Not, well, here's some paperwork. Or, well, it's funny you should ask. There's this teacher named Jesus. Ever heard of them? We're just grabbing this. He, it's okay. He needs it. No, all they need to say is that the Lord needs them. None of the Gospels tell us whether the owner of the donkey and the colt had a relationship with Jesus and the disciples. It doesn't tell us whether they knew that Jesus and the disciples were going to come and obtain the donkey. But it's clear here that them going to get those two animals was by Jesus' design and authority. It was by Jesus' design and authority. And we're going to see that even further here in a minute. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew they would find the donkey and the colt. He knew they would be waiting. He knew that the disciples would untie them, bring it back to him. If anybody challenged them, all they need to say was that the Lord needs them and they would bring them back. But I want to pause here for a second. Part of receiving our king, like we said, requires preparation. And I have to ask, what has the Lord asked you for? What does the Lord ask you for? Now, knowing that Jesus was Lord was all that the owner needed to know. In order for him to let go of his donkey and colt for Jesus and disciples, all he needed to know was that it was for the Lord. And for us, when the Lord asks us to do something, the Lord, the God, the creator of heavens and earth who loves us, when he asks us to do something, do we question or grumble against him? Like, you're asking me for my time, Lord? Father, you're asking me for money? You, you want me to give? Or, Lord, you want me to do this or that? I don't, I don't, I can't, Lord. But we see here that this owner, or whoever owned these donkeys, was willing, because Jesus was Lord, to allow Jesus to use them. Do we grumble against God when the Lord asks us for something? Or do we simply say, yes, Lord, this is yours all I have is yours. Because preparing to receive our king requires our willingness to do what Jesus has asked for us. It requires our willingness. We're going to look in a second also at obedience as a part of it. But our willingness to do what Jesus has asked for us is key in here. What has he asked? What has he asked of you? Now, our instructions may not be to go fetch a donkey. If any of it is, let me know. I can come help. But we know that Christ is going to return one day. And we need to prepare for him. 
We need to prepare for him here on this earth. And just two quick ways I see is that first we need to make disciples. The last command that Jesus gave his own disciples before he left earth was in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's your job. I'm going to come back again, but this is your job in the meantime is to make disciples And so this preparation requires disciple-making, but it also requires preparing ourselves by reading the scriptures and praying. It's really simple. I thought about going into a lot of different things about this, but it's really simple. Preparing to receive our king requires discipleship, and it requires us praying and reading our scriptures. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation, to, Jesus, or to teaching. And Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so if Jesus is saying this himself, then it must be important. And I believe that part of making disciples and part of preparing to receive our king is also reading the scriptures and praying to our Lord. And praying. This is how part of how we prepare. Now, not only was the availability of the donkey by Jesus' design, but we read that his use of them was by his design as well. Let's read this. This took place, he says in verse 4, Matthew writes, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast, of burden. So what is the this? Matthew says this took place. The this is talking about Jesus going and sitting on a colt, getting a colt, and sitting on it. And what he's doing is he's quoting Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah prophesied about the coming Messiah. So we see in Zechariah 9 verse 9 through 10, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter to Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He continues, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow should be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so the prophet Zechariah here is talking about the coming Messiah, the coming Messiah who is going to bring salvation. And he's talking about it, the Messiah coming into Jerusalem the same way we're about to see Jesus doing that. The same exact way. He says, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, remember, or if you remember anything about the Gospels and just a general overview from the Gospels, we know that the Gospels were not all written to one audience. All right? The Gospels all had specific audiences that were written to. So the, the, the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, was written specifically to the Jewish people. Specifically to the Jewish people. That's why you see in Matthew so much more in terms of uh, prophecy, so much more in terms of things that the Jews were going to know because Matthew was trying to show them this Jesus is the Messiah that you were preparing for. This Jesus is the Messiah that you were looking for. And so this is part of it here. 
He took special care to note how Jesus used this prophecy and explained it. Matthew explained it here. Now, why is it so important that Jesus rode a donkey other than fulfilling the prophecy? We see here that Jesus came humble and mounted on a donkey. A donkey was a really lowly creature, very lowly. He was a lowly creature and not what you would think of as transportation for a Messiah, right? A savior, a king, a donkey? No, when we think of a king or we think of a Messiah, we think the same way that the Jews thought, which was that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be riding in on a white horse and he was going to come in and he was going to slay the Romans and he was going to restore the nation of Israel to its rightful place. But Jesus comes in on a donkey. He didn't want people believing that he was going to be this great warrior king because that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to signify humility and peace. A war-bound king sits on a white horse, but a humble, peace-driven king sits on a donkey. He humbles himself before the people. And we're going to see here in a second that the crowd didn't see Jesus as that. The crowd saw Jesus. The crowd thought and hoped that Jesus was going to be this conqueror, this Messiah. So, When five days later Jesus was arrested and then hung on a cross, the crowd was out there crying, crucify him. Because this God, this Messiah that they thought Jesus was, was not in fact. But Jesus the whole time was trying to tell them, look, I'm not what you think I am. I have come to save you, but to save you from your sins, to save you from your wrongdoings, I have not come to be an earthly conqueror. I have come to bring salvation for eternity. They didn't recognize the crowd that in his humility he was riding in on the colt of a donkey seeking peace rather than war. Jesus did not come for recognition or fame. Jesus didn't come for recognition or fame. He didn't come to take power and defeat the Jewish captors. He came humbled and sitting on a donkey. And five days later, he was going to be humbled on a cross. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 8, says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ." Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Just as he was on the donkey, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humbled himself by becoming obedient taking the form of a servant, emptying himself. This is what Jesus came to do. He came so that he would be humbled. He came so that he would bring peace. He came so that he would bring salvation. But it's not going to be the salvation that the Jews thought it was going to be. And Paul writes in Philippians 2, he says, Have this same mind. Have this mind among yourselves. I think there's a lesson here. Christ was the Son of God. Christ was the Lord. Christ was King. And Christ could have come into the city riding on a white horse. 
He could have told the disciples, go, get me the best, the finest horse you can find, and I'm going to ride into the city like a king that the people are expecting. He could have put himself into a position of power and authority, riding into the city with all angelic fanfare and heavenly might on display, but Jesus chose humility. Do we see that here? Jesus chose humility. He was the son of God, but he chose to ride in on a donkey. And then five days later, he would choose to be humble and obedient, even to the point of death. Jesus chose to be less. And it it forced me to ask, how many times do I put myself into a position to be greater rather than a position of humility? How often do we eagerly desire that fanfare, that fame, that celebration of our name instead of focusing on lowering ourselves into a posture of serving one another? Do we seek power or do we seek peace? Do we choose to be less? Preparing to receive our king requires us to be willing uh, to, to Christ to make disciples in prayer, but it also requires us to be humble. It requires us to engage in humility. We prepare by doing what he has asked us to do, and by being willing to humble ourselves and serve one another. So first, receiving the king requires preparation. Second, we're going to see in this passage that receiving the king requires obedience. Let's move on. Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Very simple. Right? There was no fussing from the disciples. There was no, Jesus, you sure? Why us? Can't they do it? They chose to be obedient. None of the Gospels record any pushback or debate from these two disciples. All Scripture tells us is they went and they did as Jesus had directed. They trusted Jesus as Lord enough to know that there was no argument that they had that would be sufficient enough to back out of this assignment. And the disciples were obedient. We see that here. The disciples were obedient. They did as Jesus had directed them. And Luke, he actually records that the disciples um, were challenged. Luke says that the disciples, that they went forward and that they were actually challenged by the owners about receiving the, uh, the, the donkey, about untying the donkey and the colt. And, and, but all they said was exactly what Jesus said, which was the Lord needs them. And the owner allowed them to go. The owner allowed them to go, and they let them go. And so quite simply, we see in this passage that once Jesus had asked the disciples to go and obtain a donkey and a colt, they were obedient in doing it. Are we obedient to Christ? In order to receive the king, We must be obedient in the task that Jesus has set before us. It requires preparation, but it also requires obedience. We can't just prepare ourselves for our king, but we have to be obedient to what our king asks us to do. Jesus asked the disciples to go and retrieve this donkey and this colt so that he would be able to ride into the city and fulfill the prophecy. Are we obedient to what God has asked us to do? James writes in James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, but be doers of the word. What is the word? The word is this, all right? The word of God. 
James writes, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the word, perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, and he will be blessed in his doing. James says, and he writes, that the one who comes and the one who submits himself to the Lord and does the word, he will be blessed. And we can't choose to just listen to the word. We can't choose to just listen, but we have to choose to do and to act. The disciples were obedient and in order for Jerusalem to receive the king, it required the obedience of the disciples. And in order for us to receive our king, it requires obedience. It requires obedience. So first, we saw that receiving the king requires preparation. Second, we saw that it requires obedience. But third, we're going to see that receiving the king requires submission. Receiving the king requires submission. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We see in these verses that Jesus enters the city and the crowds, they gather around him and they lay their cloaks on the ground and they lay palm branches on the ground and they wave them and they're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. It kind of reminds me of those stories you hear of like when a Roman general and his army enters the city. And he enters the city just after being at a long campaign of winning battles. And he enters the city and the crowds line the streets celebrating the return of this general, celebrating the return of this army because they have won. They have defeated. There was victory in them. And so they line the streets as the general and his army makes his way to the palace and they are in such celebration and fanfare. And I kind of see that same picture here with the Jews. The crowd is seeing Jesus as that general, as their own Jewish general, their own Jewish king who is coming to win, who is coming for victory. And so they celebrate him in that same way. But this isn't the end of a military campaign. This isn't even the beginning of a military campaign. This is the beginning of the final events that would lead to Jesus' death resurrection, and exaltation. That's what Jesus was doing when he entered the city. Now in this passage, we see that the crowd here takes three actions. So three actions happen here uh, for the crowds. First, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Many in the crowd, they laid their cloaks on the road, and, and laying their cloaks on the road was a sign of submission. It was a sign of submission. Now, remember, this isn't any blacktop that Jesus is walking in on, right? This is a dirty Jerusalem city road, probably filled with animal droppings, footprints, and every other gross thing you can think of, right? But the people showed that they were submitting themselves to the Je this Jesus, to this king, by laying their own cloaks on the ground, they were showing their submission and obedience to Christ. And this parallels with what the people did for Jehu when he was anointed king over Israel. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13 records it like this. Then in haste, 
every man of them took his garments and put in under him, put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And so the Jews, the crowd is drawing it from that, from that tradition of laying their cloaks on the ground, preparing for the king, receiving this king, receiving their hopeful Messiah, just as the people did for Jehu when he was anointed king over Israel all the way back in 2 Kings. And so we see first they lay their cloaks on the ground. Second, others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, although Matthew doesn't record it, the Gospel of John actually tells us that the branches were palm branches. And this is significant because the palm branch was a sign of Jewish nationalism. The palm branch was a sign of Jewish nationalism. So it'd be similar to like our American flag or the bald eagle. When people see that, they think America, right? When people saw the palm branch, they thought Jews. They thought the nation of Israel. And so the crowds here, they're laying down their palm branches. They're cutting them from the trees because they're hoping that Jesus was the Messiah again who would come and he would defeat the Romans and he would have the power and he would have the, the fight, the battle for them. And they thought that victory had come in the way they wanted it to. Now, don't get me wrong. Victory does come through Jesus. Victory comes through Jesus as he defeats sin and as he defeated death, but it's not in the way that the Jews believed. It's not in the way that the Jews thought. And so Jesus is coming into the city. The people are laying their cloaks on the ground. They're laying their palm branches on the ground. And third, we see that the crowds that followed him and went before and after him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. There's some debate over what this word really means in the Hebrew text, but most scholars or a lot of scholars believe that the word simply means save us, we pray. Hosanna, save us. It's, it's in Jewish cultures, it's a sign of, of joyous celebration, of rejoicing. It signifies that. And this phrase that they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is directly from Psalm 118. It's directly from Psalm 118, in which the psalmist writes, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See the similarities there? See, they're crying out. They're repeating that. They're chanting that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of Israel. Save us is what the people cried out to Jesus. Save us, son of David, Messiah. Blessed are you, Jesus, you who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. If we were to continue reading on in Matthew 21, we'd see that actually Jesus goes into the temple after this. He turns over the money changers' tables. And then we see that he heals the lame and the blind. And Matthew writes after all this in verse 15, but when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were angry. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? Jesus, teacher, do you hear what these people are saying to you? These children are saying to you, they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus answers them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? 
Jesus here, he's quoting Psalm chapter 8, but he's saying, look, even out of those who can't speak, the Lord has prepared praise, and I am the one who they are praising. They are crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And Jesus recites this. And, and Luke records it like this. He says that the Pharisees, again, they were taking issue with the people, shouting Hosanna. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answers them. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. <laughs> if these were silent, if these people were silent, if, if they weren't saying anything, the very stones, creation itself, would cry out, Hosanna. These very stones would cry out to the Lord. The people were worshiping the king together in response to what they had seen him do. They saw Jesus as Savior, their Messiah, and they cried out to him in exaltation, but also in need of salvation. Again, it's not the salvation that they were expecting, but here they are submitting themselves to Christ, crying out to him, saying, Lord, save us. Son of God, save us. They were willing to submit themselves to Christ. They were showing Jesus that they would be his by laying their cloaks on the ground and by waving and laying the palm branches on the ground and crying this out to him that they would do whatever he asked them to do and that they would give whatever he needed. Now, ultimately, we see that they don't do this. Because like I said earlier, five days later, they are crying, crucify him, and Jesus is deserted as the G's, not what the people expected. But at this point, they're crying out to him, save us. They were showing submission. Receiving our king requires submission. And do we submit our lives to Christ? And I don't just mean a part of our lives. I don't just mean an a, a hour on Sunday and an hour on Wednesday. Not just a part of our lives, but our entire selves. James, again, he writes this in, in chapter 7, verse 4 through 10. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. As we see here in James, he starts these verses with, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And he ends it with, Humble yourselves before the Lord. Submit yourselves and do it humbly. You see the theme that is reigning in this passage, right? Jesus was humble coming in on a donkey. And the people were humble and laying their own cloaks on the ground. And I believe that for us as believers today, humility is so important to us submitting ourselves to Christ. And so when we submit ourselves to Christ, when we submit our lives to Christ, when we give our lives to Christ, do we do it boastfully? Like the Pharisees, the Pharisees were submitting themselves to the law. The Pharisees were submitting themselves to God. But they were saying, look at me. See what I'm doing. Watch me. Are we doing it like that? Or are we doing it with humility? So receiving the king requires submission. And finally, receiving the king requires witness. Receiving the king requires witness. Hosanna, the people were crying. Now Jesus' entry into the city resulted in something happening. It resulted in something happening. That's that word was quickly spreading throughout all Jerusalem that something had happened, that this prophet from Nazareth named Jesus must be somebody 
important. And I want to finish out Matthew's account by reading verse 10 and 11. Matthew writes, And when he, being Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Who is this? Who is this man that is entering the city and the crowds are crying Hosanna to him? The city was stirred up. It was shaken. And this is really similar to what happens when Jesus was born. Recall the the wise men and what they said to Herod and what happened in Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea on the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And, and Matthew records, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Jesus, king of the Jews, has been born. Where is he? And the whole city was stirred up. The whole city was shaken. And 30 plus years later, Jesus is entering the city again. He's entering the city and the whole city is stirred up because this figure, this Apparent Messiah, this apparent and hopeful king is entering the city. He's entering the city. King of the Jews, Messiah, salvation. Jesus entering the city was a big deal, and everybody was talking about it. It kind of reminds me of before I lived here in Texas, I lived in West Tennessee in this tiny little town of 3,800 people and one stoplight. Oh, the days of no traffic. It was great. But I live there, and not much happens in Huntington, Tennessee. And uh, so when anybody who is anybody comes to town, the people talk about it. And one day, we had these two guys from the show American Pickers. Y'all ever seen that show, American Pickers? Right. So we had uh, Mike Wolf and Frank Fritz. And they came to town, and they were looking for some things to buy. And uh, I wasn't there. I didn't hear about it at the time. But I I did hear later that they were down at the local corner gas station, and they were kind of asking around, is there anything around the area? And uh, my barber even met them and and talked to them. But the whole town was abuzz because these two guys from this TV show came to town. Like I said, small town, anybody who's anybody comes, they, they lift up, they celebrate it, they talk about it. It was all over social media. Everybody was talking about these two guys that came into Huntingdon. And I kind of think it's the same way when Jesus enters Jerusalem. Right? Jerusalem's a pretty big place. But it says the whole city, the entire city, not just a corner of it, not just a few people, but the whole city was stirred up because this Jesus had entered the city. Some people adored him. Some people, like the Pharisees, hated him. And some, like the Romans, may have even feared him. But this is why the entry into Jerusalem was so triumphant because of the people shouting Hosanna, because of the whole city knowing that Jesus had entered. It marked the beginning of a week that would end in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And and we know that today. We have that perspective today. But when Jesus entered the city, the crowds didn't know that. All they knew was this Jesus was the Messiah that they hoped would save them. Save them from the Romans, save them from their oppression, Restore them to the nation they once were. But who is this man? This isn't who they thought. This was Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, who we know as the Son of God. We know him 
as the Lord and Savior who created the heavens and earth, who came to earth in human form, and he humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. This is who Jesus is. This is the gospel message that Jesus came to save sinners like you and me, that he died on a cross, but then three days later, he rose from the dead to show his power over sin. And for us as believers, receiving our king, receiving Christ requires witness. Like I said at the very beginning, Jesus is going to come back again. He's going to come back again one day. And we have a requirement as believers to go and to witness to others, to tell others about it. If you are here last week, Pastor Kevin spoke about this. He spoke about the witness of the church and of, of Stephen and Acts, who was ultimately martyred because he was willing to be open and honest and tell people and witness to people about this Jesus. And we see that as a result of Jesus' arrival in the city, the entire city was stirred up and the crowds bearing witness to him loudly proclaimed this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This man, this is the prophet Jesus. In fact, in John's account, we see that the crowd were there because they had been a witness. John writes in John 12, he says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And so notice what happens here. The crowd, they saw Lazarus raised from the dead, and they continued to bear witness about the miracle. And the crowd that went to meet him because they heard about the miracle continued to bear witness about his arrival. In order for the crowd to be there, they would have had to heard somebody tell them about this miracle. You see what happens there? Lazarus is raised from the dead. People witness it. People tell people in Jerusalem. People in Jerusalem hear that this Jesus is coming. They go to meet Jesus because they had heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And we know that the disciples' own witness of Jesus would serve as the launching ground for the early church. And Luke writes in Acts 1, Verse 6, he says, so when they had come together, this is right before Jesus ascends to heaven. He says, so when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. And for those of us who are believers here today, the disciples began to bear witness as they went out and they went into Judea and they went into Samaria and they went to the ends of the earth. And 2,000 years later, if you're a believer, you're a result of that witness. And you're a result of somebody witnessing to you, somebody being a witness to you. So we have that same responsibility as believers when we receive our King. And receiving Jesus Christ as king and saying that he is king of our lives, that requires us to be witnesses. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, this great passage, I love this. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have never not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they had never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How will they hear unless somebody tells them? How will they hear unless someone tells them? And how will people hear unless we are a witness? Through our testimonies of what Christ has done in our own lives, of how he has changed our lives, as the miracles that he has done in our lives, are we a witness of that? Through the sharing of the gospel, we share that Jesus died for sinners, was raised from the dead, and that he offers salvation for all who calls on his name. And church, our witness is required of this. That Jesus is the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, and that he came to heaven in order to die for us so that we might have salvation in his name because he is the Messiah. Not an earthly salvation, not salvation from earthly bondage, but salvation from eternity so that we may have an eternity with Christ. If we know the saving power of Jesus, we have a responsibility to share with others. It's simple. It's, it's so simple. If we know the saving power of Jesus, we have a responsibility to share with others. So here we are today, 2,000 years after that triumphant entry, and we saw how Jesus prepared for the, his arrival by sending the disciples, how the disciples were obedient to Christ in retrieving the animals, how the crowds submitted themselves to Christ in laying their cloaks on the ground and shouting, Hosanna, and how all Jerusalem was hearing about the Christ because of the witness of the people. I just want to challenge us this morning. How do we receive our king? How do we receive the king? Do we do it with preparation, with obedience, with submission, and with the witness? Or do we think that Jesus is just someone to just call upon when he fits our schedule and our needs? Do we give all to him or do we just go to him when we need him? How are we receiving our king? As the crowds in Jerusalem on the, this fateful day received the king, the entire city asked who this man was. This man was Jesus. And the problem, again, was that the people thought that he was going to be the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, that he'd bring victory over the Romans and restore the kingdom of Israel. But this isn't who Jesus was. He was a Messiah that would bring victory over sin, over death, and would provide salvation for sinners and hope for the lost. But this isn't what the crowd wanted. The crowd didn't want this. They didn't want to know this. They may have received the king with celebration and rejoicing, but with the help of the Pharisees instigating the people against Jesus and the people realizing this Messiah was not the one they anticipated or even wanted, five days later they were yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. We don't want him. We want Barabbas. Crucify him. How do we receive our king in five days? Are we yelling crucify him or are we yelling, yes, he is Lord, he is Savior? Do we prepare for him? Are we obedient? Do we submit to him? Do we witness about him or do we choose to say, yes, Lord, be my savior, but I'm just going to stand over here and not do anything. <laughs> That's basically the same as yelling, crucify him. 
the end of the day, are we receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, being obedient and submissive to him? Are we preparing for a second coming and bearing witness about the amazing God he is? Or are we in our hearts yelling, crucify him, that we don't want this Jesus? How do we receive the king? That's my question for this morning. As the worship team comes back up, there's a lot of stuff in this text. There's a lot of stuff here, and I, I see it, and I think about it, and we see Jesus is coming into a, a Jerusalem. We see the, the prophecies. We see the people crying out to him, and they receive the king in their own way. But I want to ask us this morning, have we even received the king at all? I believe there are those of us in the room today who are not believers who do not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, do not believe. They may believe, you may believe that he died on the cross, but you don't believe that he was raised from the dead. Do you believe this gospel message that Jesus came to save sinners? That Jesus came to bring salvation, and there is salvation in no one else except by the name of of Jesus. And I ask you today that if you are in that spot, if you're someone who says, I don't know this Jesus, I don't have a relationship with this Jesus, with this king, but I want it, I invite you to come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Kevin, grab someone after church, or come up here during the invitation. That's what this time is for, to come to the altar and to say, I need you, Lord. And then I want to challenge us for those in the room who are believers. How are we receiving the king that we have already gotten? We have received salvation. But are we continuing to receive it day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute? Father, you are an amazing Lord. We exalt your name today, Lord, and we ask, Father, that you who saved sinners, you who died on the cross, you who arrived in a city 2,000 years ago to be beaten, to be put to death, and then to rise from the dead. Lord, you who are the maker of heavens and earth, we ask this morning that we will turn to you, Father, and that if we don't believe in you, Lord, that we will believe and put our trust in you, and if we do believe in you, Lord, we will recognize that receiving you requires something of us. It requires more than us just coming to church. It requires us doing more, claiming you as king and Lord, being obedient, submissive to you, Father, and telling others, Lord, we love you. And we give all the glory and all the praise and honor to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning as we go into our time of invitation.